This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome once again to the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. This is episode number 39. We're beginning to take an in-depth, detailed look at Genesis chapter 3. Last week, we just sort of looked at that space in between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Fascinating theory, I propose there. Lots of positive feedback on Facebook. Thank you for those of you who left that positive feedback. I appreciate it. Today, we're turning to look at the serpent. Why was the serpent in the garden? And if the serpent was Satan, as the New Testament does teach... Why did God allow Satan, or the serpent, to be there in the garden knowing that it would tempt Adam and Eve? I mean, what's going on there? So these sorts of questions we will consider today in this episode of the One Verse Podcast. Stick around to learn more. It's a new month. Today is the first of the month. And, uh, look, I could use your support. My expenses for last month were not fully covered. And it is now a new month, so I'm facing a bunch of more expenses in the coming month. Uh, You may not realize it, but blogging, writing books, podcasting, it's not my full-time job. It's just a hobby. I have a a different full-time job on the side, and I still devote about, I don't know, 20, 30 hours a week sometimes, it seems, to this hobby of mine, blogging, writing, podcasting. And uh, it's turning into a rather expensive hobby. I I do everything I possibly can to keep the costs down. I do everything myself. Don't hire anybody, don't have any employees, nothing like that. Right now, though, even cutting costs everywhere I can uh, to maintain my blog at redeeminggod.com, publish my books, produce this podcast, I have over $300 every month in expenses. Now, uh, I, I do get a little revenue from book sales, I have a few ads on my blog. If you've been to redeeminggod.com, you've probably seen some of those ads. All in all, I get a little over $100 around, depending on the month, uh, to to cover some of my expenses. But that still leaves me $200 in the red every month. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not trying to get rich here. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, make this my full-time job or my full-time income. Nothing like that. I I simply would love to have my blog and expenses covered each month so that I can keep the website up and running. I can keep putting the books out. And especially keep getting this podcast published, these podcast episodes published every month. So, look, if you've benefited in something I've put out, my, my website, my blog, my books, uh, this podcast, and you would you'd like to help partner with me, I certainly, I, I really would appreciate it. And uh, to, to, do, to learn more and to give a gift, you can go to redeeminggod.com partner to make a one-time gift or a recurring donation. That's redeeminggod.com slash partner. Thank you in advance for anything you're able to give. And with that in mind, let's dive into today's study. Uh, I know that it, it sort of seems a little bit <laughs> maybe like we're, we're taking, I'm taking my time getting into Genesis 3. I mean, this is episode 39, and in episode 37, I gave you a brief summary of the traditional way that Genesis 3 is taught. Uh, Nothing wrong with the traditional understanding of Genesis 3, I just think it misses most of the significant truths that are in this chapter, Uh, and I'm going to explain what a lot of those truths are as we go along. 
And then last week, we didn't really get into the chapter either. In episode 38, all I did is look at the space in between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. And I proposed something there that's, that's quite different about Genesis 3 than most of us has ever been taught. And uh, so if you missed that podcast episode, episode 38, make sure you go back and listen to it. It's really foundational for what we're going to be learning as we work our way through Genesis 3. Today, in Genesis 39, you might have noticed, if you saw the, the link uh, the sh- where the show notes are, it's, it says Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And you might be, all right, we're going to cover seven verses today. Well, <laughs> no. Uh, to, to be honest, all I'm really doing today is looking at the first three words of Genesis 3, 1. Uh, three words in Hebrew, anyway. The three words are, in English, they are, now the serpent was more cunning. So in the New King James, that's six words. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is I want you to fully understand what is going on in Genesis 3. And to do that, I really need to carefully lay the foundation, the groundwork for you. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about the serpent today, but the reason the show notes and and the title for this podcast say 3, 1 through 7 is I'm also going to briefly talk about the fruit of the forbidden tree and the temptation by the serpent when uh, uh, the serpent tempts the woman to eat from the fruit. So uh, for that reason, I'm calling today's episode The Shrewd, The Food, and the nude. (laughs) Catchy, huh? (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, today's episode is really just an introduction to the conversation between Eve and the serpent, which is found in verses 1 through 5, and then when she and the man eat from the forbidden fruit in in verses 6 and 7. Uh, So that's sort of also a preview of what we're looking at in future episodes. Next week, we'll look at this conversation between the serpent and Eve that is in verses 1 through 5, and then the week after that, We'll pick up in verse 6, okay? So, and probably look at verse 7 as well. So, to help us understand chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, it's first of all important to recognize some of the cultural background themes that the first audience of this story, you know, Moses when he was writing it, and the Hebrew people when they were listening to it, how they, what they would have recognized, what they would have understood when they were listening to this story so many thousands of years ago. And Two of the stories that really help us are these Babylonian um, myths, these Babylonian legends. One is called the Gilgamesh Epic, and the other is the Adapa Legend. If you want to read uh, the Gilgamesh Epic and the Adapa Legend, or at least portions of it, I have links in the show notes to those at uh, redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 3, 1 through 7. So what do these stories tell us? How do they help us understand chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. Well, you may remember, if you listened to Genesis, the episode on Genesis 2.25, I briefly mentioned that in the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic, remember there was this wild man running in the forest, naked with the animals, and he was eventually tamed by a woman. Uh, The man was Enkidu, and the woman you might remember was a prostitute, a harlot from the city of Uruk. And um, what you might recall, as the woman is seducing Enkidu in the Gilgamesh epic, there by this pool of water, 
There's a couple of times where she tells him that he will become like a god. Uh, The first time is after they have lain together for six days and seven nights, and he wants to go back to running around with the wild animals, and she says, You are wise, Enkidu, and now you have become like a god. Why do you want to run with the beasts of the hills? And instead of the beast, she gets him to go with her back to Uruk, where he eventually meets Gilgamesh and becomes friends with him. You can read more about it in in, uh, the Gilgamesh epic itself. But before they go back to Uruk, she takes her clothes, because he's naked, remember? And for a time there, of course, she's naked as well. But anyway, uh, he doesn't have any clothes. So before they go back to Uruk, she takes her clothes and divides them in two, and gives the man some clothing to cover up his nakedness. And the first thing they do, now that he is properly clothed, is they go to some tents of some local shepherds, where, for the very first time in his life, Enkidu is given real food, human food, to eat. Previously, he's just eaten you know, plants and, and berries and stuff out in the wild, just like the animals do, the grass of the field. But in the tents of the shepherds, Enkidu, he's given bread and wine. And it's interesting because when the woman offers these foods to Enkidu, she says, Enkidu, eat bread. It is the staff of life. Drink wine. It is the custom of the land. And it's interesting in the account, it says, And after he ate and drank, he became wise and strong so that no man was his rival. Now, does any of that sound a bit familiar? It should. If you're familiar with the story of Genesis 3, then you know that, you know, the the woman, she gives the fruit to the, the man, to Adam, who was there with her. And the text says the eyes of both of them were opened, right? Uh, So that they recognized they were naked. And then eventually they get clothes. They try to make their own from the fig leaves of first, of course. So, lots of similarities between Genesis 3 and the Gilgamesh epic. Of course, in the Gilgamesh epic, it's the woman who tells the man that he will become like a god, whereas in Genesis 3, it's the serpent who says those things. We talked about that a little bit back when we looked at Genesis 2.25, so sort of in preparation for this. But the Gilgamesh epic is not the only story that Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and eventually Moses and the other Israelite people would have recognized when they were reading Genesis 3. The other one is the Adapa legend. Uh, There's a part of it that's most interesting called Adapa and the Food of Life. It's sort of a chapter or section out of this myth, this this Babylonian story. And in this part of the story, Adapa is a man who is created by one of the gods, a god named Ea. And he's very much like Adam. In fact, Adapa means soil or ground. Remember, Adam means dirt or earth. Uh, And the text says, in the Adapa legend, that Adapa was wise, but he did not have eternal life. The text describes him as chief among men, blameless, of clean hands, anointed, an observer of the divine statues. Anyway, one day Adapa, he's out fishing, And this strong wind comes up and capsizes his boat. He gets a little upset. And so he uses some magic to break the wing of the south wind. And when the south wind stops blowing, the land is not able to cool down and the region goes into a drought. The gods get angry about this, that, you know, the rain's not falling, the plants aren't growing, people are dying. So they summon Adapa to explain what happened. And before Adapa goes, though, to sort of get his 
sentence from the gods or whatever, because they're upset at him, uh, he goes before a different god, uh, the high god Anu. Um, that's what he's going to do. But before he goes, the god who created him, Ea, comes and instructs Adapa how to behave when he stands in the court of the gods. And Ea tells Adapa that he should accept new clothes and oil when they are offered to him, but he should not accept and not eat or drink anything that is put before him, because that food is the food of the gods and is not safe for a man like Adapa to eat. He'll die if he eats it. So, Adapa goes before the high god, Anu, and it's interesting because the high god tries to get Adapa to eat and drink the food of the gods, and Anu says if Adapa eats, he will receive eternal life. He will never die like like the gods. He will become like a god and not die. And guess what Adapa did? Well, in this particular legend, Adapa refuses to eat. He refused to eat and drink the food of the gods, and so the gods, they send him back to earth to live and die as a mortal man. Now, the story sort of leaves the question unanswered. What would have happened if Adapa had eaten the food of life? He had one god tell him, don't eat it, lest you die. He had a different god tell him, come on, eat it. I'm giving you this gift so that you can have eternal life. Now, he chooses not to eat it, and he ends up dying, which is very interesting, isn't it? So, anyway, the question is left unanswered. But again, the point is, there's lots of similarities between the Adapa legend and the story of Adam and Eve, as we have it here in Genesis 3. In both cases, they are warned against eating certain food. In the Adapa legends, he doesn't eat it, and he ends up dying anyway. Here in Genesis 3, they do eat it, uh, but he still dies. Uh, So, either way, death is the result. So, we have these two stories, the Gilgamesh epic and the Adapa legend, and they do form the background to this story in Genesis 3. And you want to keep them in mind as we work our way through Genesis 3 in future podcast episodes. But for now, all I really want to do is focus on these opening words, these words of the serpent in Genesis 3.1. Sorry, not the words of the serpent, the words about the serpent, that the serpent was more cunning. Uh, We want to briefly talk about Uh, you know, what the serpent is, why it was there, uh, you know, who or what does it represent? How how could God have allowed this cunning serpent to enter the garden, knowing that it would tempt Adam and Eve? So let's just try to answer some of those questions in the time, remaining time that we have today. To begin with, I want to warn you about trying to uh, too quickly identify the serpent as Satan. Uh, We must not jump too quickly to the New Testament. The New Testament does say in places like Revelation 12, 9 and and Revelation 22 that that the serpent is Satan. But but I I don't want you to make that identification too quick. Look, the, the Israelite readers, Moses and the Hebrew people, when they first read this account, they would not, they didn't have the same understanding of Satan that the New Testament has, or that even we have today. And so that is not what they would have understood when they were reading this text. And if we want to understand the text the way it was meant to be understood and the way they understood it at that time, then we need to seek to understand 
it the same way. And, and that means we cannot identify the serpent with Satan. So the Israelites wouldn't have done that, and we shouldn't do that either, at least not initially. Uh, if we think of the serpent as Satan, then we will miss the point of the text. Uh, also, I don't think we should get sidetracked with discussions about how the woman could understand the serpent. You know, that before the fall, were you know humans and animals able to talk and communicate? I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe so. That uh, maybe we are intended to, to be able to communicate with the animals and that we'll be able to in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know. It's a fun topic that we could maybe discuss, you know, sometime around a cup of coffee or something. It might be fun, but the Bible, does, that's not the point of the text either, okay? It, this isn't a, also, the point of the text isn't, I've sometimes heard it taught, this is sort of like an Aesop's fable or a fairy tale. You know, how the skunk got its stripes? Well, this, this Genesis 3 is how the serpent lost its legs. <laughs> no, that's not the point either. Okay, the point of the text must be guided by what the Hebrew audience, what Moses meant, what the people would have understood the text to be saying, and the cultural background clues, the Gilgamesh epic and the Adapa legend, those help us understand how the people at that time would have understood this text. Uh, the Gilgamesh epic, for example, did you? I didn't mention it, but it also contains a serpent. Uh, at one point in the story, Gilgamesh, he obtains the plant of life from the realm of the gods, and it would grant eternal life to all humans if he could get it back to earth. However, before he can escape the realm of the gods and get back to earth, guess what? The plant of eternal life is stolen from him by a serpent. Again, go read the Gilgamesh epic. I've got links in the show notes for you to, to read it if you want. Uh, the Adapa legend, the Adapa legend also contains a serpent, although it's not quite as obvious. When uh, Adapa goes before the court of the gods, remember, to speak with Anu, one of the first beings that Adapa encounters when he goes there is a god named Gishzida. And we don't realize it, but if you go back and look, Gishzida was the lord of the fruitful tree. Sound familiar? And guess what? Gishzida had the shape of a serpent. That was his form. He took the form of a serpent, and he was the lord of the fruitful tree. Hmm. Here we have a serpent in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Lots of parallels there. Uh, so that helps us understand a little bit. But it's not just these Babylonian myths that mention serpents in connection with food and eternal life. Uh, in Egypt, remember the Hebrew people are coming out of Egypt and uh, Moses would be telling this story to them as part of their heritage, as part of their background, to help them understand who God is, what God is like. That takes us all the way back to some of the first parts of this podcast. That's the point of Genesis 1, to introduce God to the people of Israel. And the symbolism of serpents is everywhere in Egypt. Um, the Pharaoh, for example, he had a serpent on his crown, you might remember when we looked at Genesis 1, I mentioned this Egyptian belief that uh, every night a serpent swallowed the sun, and the sun needed to be reborn every morning. You might remember as well, uh, later in Genesis, I'm sorry, over in Exodus actually, that uh, when Moses and Aaron come to Egypt to free and liberate the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt, one of the miracles that God does is causes Aaron's staff to turn into a serpent and swallow the staffs uh, 
of the, the serpent staffs of the Egyptian magicians. Uh, when we look at uh, Genesis 3, 14 and 15, uh, I'm going to point out some passages from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which talks about serpents crawling on their bellies in the dust of the ground, and how when they try to strike our heel, we crush their heads. <laughs> it comes straight out of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Very interesting. So um, that's some of this, the, the symbolism of the serpent. And, and I think that uh, the average Israelite would have this in mind when they read Genesis 3.1. Oh, the serpent, the serpent in the food of life, the serpent in the garden, the garden of the gods. Okay, um, so, uh, but, but what would they have understood? Would they really think of it as a serpent? Now, I, I don't know. I think the description of the serpent being cunning helps us understand a bit what the original author had in mind, what the original audience would have understood uh, when they read about the serpent here. Um, the word cunning probably doesn't mean, it's probably not the best translation. I mentioned it before, the word cunning here is actually almost identical to the word naked used in Genesis 2.25. One is arum, the other one's arom. <laughs> not a whole lot of difference, especially in the Hebrew, which didn't initially have vowels at all. Just, just the consonants, but um, lots of scholars think they're two different words. Some think they're one. I, I just think it's a play on words here. I don't think we're to understand the serpent as being more naked. I really think sort of it's a different word with a similar sounding idea of naked, just a play on words here. But uh, I think the best translation here isn't cunning. That sort of has a negative connotation. I think probably it's best to describe the serpent here as shrewd. That's why I've titled this podcast episode, The Shrewd. Uh, so it sort of has the idea of being subtle, uh, clever, maybe, even. But but even that is not, not as important as the symbolism of the serpent with it being shrewd or cunning. What we often fail to recognize or miss is that in ancient mythology, there were these creatures thought of as chaos creatures, okay? They, they were morally neutral. It's not like they were evil. Um, but what would happen is a chaos creature, uh, well... They, they were sort of mischievous. They're not trying to do anything wrong. So they ask questions and they cause problems. They create chaos just because that's sort of the way they are. They're not evil. They're morally neutral, but just by the way they live and the way they act, the way they function, the way, the way they interact with humans and other animals, they create problems. And a serpent was one of the most common types of chaos creatures in ancient mythology. There's also owls and foxes and uh, a couple of others that were known as as chaos, these chaos creatures that caused problems. Y you might remember uh, chaos. There's a chaos element in Genesis one two with this references to the deep, the, the 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 deep waters. These chaos elements. There's these sea dragons mentioned in in Genesis one twenty, and then in Genesis one twenty eight, there's this mention of mankind subduing and having dominion over the earth. All right. All of these pictures and ideas and words would bring to mind, in the ancient Israelites, this idea of chaos sort of just beyond the corner of our vision, just waiting there, ready to pounce. It's not that it's evil, it's just chaos ready to bring problems into the ordered creation that God has made. And, and so God has told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, look, have dominion, subdue the earth. In other words, hold chaos at bay. All right? 
But as we see here in Genesis 1, a chaos creature is in the garden and is talking to the woman. And this would create red flags for the reader of this account all over the place. It'd be alarm bells going up. Oh, no, no, no. Don't talk to the chaos creature. Don't, let, don't communicate with the chaos creature. Someone step in and, and banish the chaos creature. Remove the chaos creature. Get control of the, of the chaos creature. Subdue it. Have dominion over it or bad things are going to result. And of course, as the woman has this ongoing conversation with this chaos creature in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, Adam, who is supposed to be the protector of the woman and of the garden, he stands silently by. And uh, that helps us understand what's going on here. So it's not helpful. By the way, um, this does fit with what the later New Testament reveals about the serpent. I I said we shouldn't understand this as Satan. But when we understand that Satan himself uh, or itself is really a Hebrew word also. It means hasatan. It means the accuser. Satan is the spirit of accusation. And accusation, as we see over and over in Scripture, uh, is one of the first signs that scapegoating is occurring. You might remember from last week's episode, that's what is going on here. Eve is the scapegoat. Genesis 3 is scapegoating Eve, the introduction of scapegoating, what we see over and over all over the place in the Bible. And the first sign of scapegoating that scapegoating is going on is an accusation is uh, someone is accused of wrongdoing. All right, so, so again, when we see the New Testament identify the serpent as the accuser, well, that's what we see going on here. It does fit when you understand what the Bible actually says about Hasatan, the accuser. Anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit in the future. We have this chaos creature. It's not an evil creature. Lots of people, how come God allowed Satan into the garden? Well, look, it's not Satan, exactly. It's the accuser, spirit of accusation. And God is not allowing evil. It's a chaos creature. This serpent is a chaos creature. And it's it's a morally neutral creature. It needs to be controlled and guided. And you need to protect yourself from it. That's how the ancient people would have understood it. Uh, But, of course, Eve doesn't. She gets into this conversation with the serpent, and that is what creates the problems. Of course, you know, the serpent here is not tempting Eve to do anything. It's not commanding her to do anything evil. All it's doing is doing what a chaos creature does, asking questions. Uh, You know, that again, I'm jumping ahead of myself. We're going to see all that next week when we look more at the conversation between the serpent and Eve in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Uh, ultimately, as we saw last week, the fault is not with Eve, the fault is with Adam. This is the first fault of Adam in the opening verses of Genesis 3. He failed to tend and protect the garden from the presence of this cunning serpent, from this chaos creature. The serpent was not being well-tended by Adam. Adam was supposed to rule over the animals and have dominion over the garden, but here in Genesis 3, he sits silently by while his wife gets led beyond the boundaries of imitation and desire and ends up eating from the forbidden tree. Uh, that's what happens in this, in this conversation. Um, again, 
this theme of imitation pops up here. You might remember some of these foundational truths we've been learning. We're made for relationship. We're made for imitation. Those were the first two, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3. And imitation is starting to get out of control as the chaos creature, this cunning serpent, engages the woman in a conversation about imitating God. We'll see all of this a lot more as we work our way through Genesis 3, especially next week as we pick back up in Genesis 3.1 and look at this conversation between Eve and the serpent. So, based on what we see today as we go in, go sort of introduce Genesis 3 and then in the future as we give, uh, look at this conversation between Eve and the serpent, we're going to see a little bit more about scapegoating. We're going to see a quite a bit more about imitation and desire and how, if we allow desire and imitation to get out of control, to exceed its proper boundaries, it is then that chaos and catastrophe result. That's what you want to keep in mind as we work our way through Genesis 3 and future episodes. We're going to see this a lot more next week when we look at this conversation between the serpent and the woman in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. I hope you join me for that. And don't forget, I would love your financial support to keep this podcast up and running. Really, what would be best is if you could set up a recurring donation, monthly recurring donation, so that the amount, whatever you want to give, is automatically donated every month. And even $10 a month would just be absolutely wonderful. And uh, you can set up that automatic monthly recurring donation going to redeeminggod.com slash partner scrolling down to the bottom where the donation form is and fill out the amount you want to give monthly do the monthly column and just click that orange button it's going to take you over to paypal where you complete your transaction i use paypal because lots of people use it and also so that you can know that your transaction will be completely secure nobody's going to steal your credit card information anything like that um Go to redeeminggod.com slash partner to give your monthly gift or even a one-time gift. Anything would be extremely helpful. And if you give, thank you so much in advance. I really appreciate it. And so do also the hundreds of people around the world who listen to and benefit from this podcast each and every week. So come back next week as I pick back up in Genesis 3. And we look at this conversation between the woman and the serpent.